The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. He said to me this summer, he was like, you know, you've always been like the loser, like the guy who all the losers can flock to, and you're a loser too, and that's always been like your shtick. And it wasn't a shtick a while ago, but it's a shtick now. Like, you're doing pretty well, and you're getting married to a really hot girl, man. Like, you can't keep claiming you're the loser. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I'm not dying for these bastards! The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Look, I'm not going to discuss my private life with total strangers. And need to talk about more. It's a matter of money. I'm Anna Sale. Hmm? I'd only lived in New York for a few weeks when I first saw Chris Gethard. It was at an improv show with a Halloween theme. And at the door, everyone was warned that your clothes might get dirty. And of course, at the end of the show, half of us were caked in fake blood. There were lots of performers on stage that night, but Chris Gethard stood out. He was very funny, but mostly it was that he was intense and kind of weird. And then I started seeing him everywhere, first on a commercial, then on The Office, and then on Louie. But I also saw him on the subway. Chris Gethard didn't feel like a celebrity to me. He felt like a guy I knew who got to hang out sometimes with famous people. Let's give it up for our host, Chris Gethard! Then a friend of mine from junior high in West Virginia got in touch with me and said that her rap group was performing on this public access show in Manhattan hosted by Chris Gethard. So, of course, I went to the taping and had no idea what to expect. Our old friend Beef Jerky is here as the human barber pole. It was ridiculous and really fun. It does feel like a thing that clicks with people of a certain age who are feeling a certain way, which is generally not that good. When they're not feeling that good, that's when they tend to find our show. Because the Chris Gethard show is like a party where everyone there is an outcast everywhere else. No one on stage or in the audience is too cool. That's what drew Hallie Bullet to the show years ago. The first one that I saw, I mean, I was completely hooked. I, I don't think I missed really many shows after no. that. And that used to freak me out because Hallie is the um, front woman and songwriter for this band, The Unlovables, that I really love. Welcome, The Unlovables! Hey, you do you know what today is? Today's a very special day. Today's the day. I'd been listening to her music for like five or six years before she started coming on the show, and I thought she was like the coolest, prettiest lady. Chris says, I don't remember, but he says that he used to write me um, fan mail on MySpace. Oh, yeah. I sent her a couple MySpace letters about the unlovables. They had mutual friends now, some musicians that played in the show. And I was like, you have to stop bringing that girl because it puts me in my head. (laughs) 
I get too nervous. <laughs> and then Hallie just reminded me there was one show that w- it was like this whole thing we were raising money for the March of Dimes. Like people were able to bid on stuff and they put $500 and it meant I had to host the rest of the show naked. So I was covering my junk and apparently I just turned to my left at one point. I was seated actually directly behind you. So you were looking at my butt the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And at one point I turned around and saw that it was Hallie who I knew from her band. And apparently I just looked at you and said... You're like, oh, great. <laughs> just made direct eye contact He's with on you. Stage. <laughs> and we didn't know each other that well. And that was the first time that I was like, it's such a weird <laughs> moment for me to realize, like, he knew who I was. Likes you. cared what I thought about him. <laughs> he was, like, a little embarrassed to have me, like, sitting, like, three feet directly behind his I did this shameful booty. show. It was really funny. I do think we had, like, a mutual, like admiration for one another just and one another's work but it made our conversations so awkward i mean so short and lots of looking at the ground and then like okay bye and then what happened what were the things leading up to it there was one week we went out dancing where like you bumped into a guy in totally standard fashion and then he got snippy with you and i like pretty much attacked him not (laughs) physically but i was like ready to fight him it was a very clear-cut sign that it was on my birthday i had some very clearly protective feelings about hallie that were bubbling and then there was a night, and I, it was early, and I was like, I don't want to go home. And then you were like, I don't want to go home either. So we stayed out dancing, and then we made out on the dance floor at Union Pool. It, nothing happened. It didn't go too far. I want to be up front. But we went in my car, and we were making out a little bit more. And then a line that I'm very proud of that I've bragged about many times, I said, I was like, well, I could drop you off at home, or we could open a real can of worms, and you could come back to my place. And then we've been together ever since. Yeah. You opened the can. Like, pretty much from our second date, I was like, oh, I'm going to marry Hallie, I guess. Like, it was just pretty (laughs) much a given. But when you're Chris Gethard, coupling up with the pretty punk rocker takes some adjusting. And that's what caught my attention about these two. They're so sure about each other, but their sense of themselves is totally in flux. Like, Things are not supposed to go Chris Gethard's way. And in his telling, it's his fault. He titled his memoir, A Bad Idea I'm About to Do. And right now, he doesn't know what to do. The public access show he's hosted for years got a big break, and then nothing came of it. So Chris and Hallie talked to me about their uncertainty about his career and money, and how they deal with it while being honest about Chris's struggles with anxiety and depression. Hallie is also in transition. She had been a punk front woman, but she'd made her career as a professional dancer, performing in shows like Rent and Stomp. When she met Chris in her late 30s, she was realizing she couldn't do it anymore. And I was so beat up. I would have ice packs attached to like every part of my body. So both Hallie and Chris are recasting their stories right as they're getting married and trying to settle down. Hallie, I want to ask you, when you when you started dating Chris Gethard, part of what he talks about in his act and what he talks about on, on his show, what he talks about in his book, is like all the ways that he feels like he's damaged. <laughs> and like, what is it like when you are entering into a relationship where your your potential partner has said these are all the red flags that you should be afraid of. Well, first of all, I haven't read his book. <laughs> she had told me she hadn't read it, and I asked her to never read it. 
<laughs> what do I always say? You say don't read that bad book. It's a bad book. It's a very bad book. You should read it. I don't know. That's not. He doesn't feel not together when I'm with him. So I think, um, you know, he sort of talks in his in his comedy about um, having had like kind of like a, a really crazy summer the summer before we got together. And I, I sort of sensed that he was like a little unhinged. And I remember <laughs> there was a a night that he um, – we like had been dancing all night and then it was like a beautiful summer night. We like walked home through Williamsburg and he lived in Greenpoint and I lived in Williamsburg. And there was like the point where we would like, you know, go our separate ways. And I was like, does he want to kiss me? Like is that what's going on here? And I was like, I can't kiss this guy. He doesn't have his stuff together. Like <laughs> – He's like not together at all. And then I don't know. It was like I don't know, just as months went by, it was like I a do. fever broke or something. And then huh. it was like then it was the right time for us to to I do you know when we connect. started dating too for the first time? I went out and I bought frames for my posters. And then also, do you remember you came? Because they were still attached to the wall with that like blue sticky stuff no, that you use in college. <laughs> I just went to Bed Bath and Beyond, and I was like, "What is adult? What do adults do?" And like some mother and daughter like helped yeah. you right from Long Island. This or something. very they very were... old school New York ladies, these mother and daughter, they were like, "You got you're gonna pick that out. You got very good taste if you want that. But if you're gonna get shams, you're gonna want to get this type of sham." It was such a sad, <laughs> pathetic transition point in my life, but it really was one where I was like, "Okay, I have not had." my stuff together but you're giving me a chance so look at all these frames and all this bedding huh i really want to work hard for you it was they really, really had that i mean i could tell i was like oh he went out and bought new bedding like he's like definitely trying to, to like i didn't want her to be in my house with all my unframed posters and my crappy bedding chris has also talked openly and quite seriously about his mental health struggles That included years of suicidal thoughts, including a few close calls, followed by medication and a lot of work in therapy. I very publicly own some of the, like, not having it together and mental health stuff. You talked about your depression and anxiety. Depression and manic stuff and all this stuff. I talk about that publicly, but we've had to have a bunch of conversations, which is like, all right, well, like, your public persona talks about that and that stuff's real and it's in you but we need to have like a conversation more quietly about like well we live in the same house now so what are the actual red flags and what are the actual ways to deal with that and that stuff is so scary and tricky that I think for us that has been something to keep our eye on and something that we've had to have some like difficult conversations about as grown-ups even though I do sort of rally so hard publicly and say, like, you got to get control of your own stuff, and I work so hard on my stuff, and I do, but when it's in your own house, it's really different. Are there days when you just say to Hallie, like, I'm having a low day and I'm not feeling great, and it's yeah. not you, it's me, and this is what's yeah. going on? that's become something that I think I'm really good at, um, is just, like, being totally upfront. And She's one of the few people I've ever met who I can not only tell, but who I'm willing to let me see like that. Because, like, when depression stuff hits, for me at least, you just physically don't have it together. You have no energy. You look bad. You're, like, crying all day, so you look like a mess, and you, like, don't want to get out of bed, so you're not showered and stuff. And you just don't look good. It's just not a good thing to have people see. But Hallie's one of the – right from the start, I never cared if she saw me like that, which I thought was, like, a pretty huge – Thing for me, we I think the 
the weirder thing is that sometimes I have manic stuff too. And that stuff is like very much like, no, nothing's wrong. I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's great. Everything's fine. And that we've run into where it's like, well, how do you deal with that? Because if you're telling me you're fine and you're not, that's a weird manic stuff is like when people talk about the depression stuff, I think they know what depression means, but they don't know there's this other side of it sometimes that's much crazier and harder to deal with. Is it hard, though, Hallie, in moments when you when you don't actually understand what's happening inside his head? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm telling you that we just haven't had that many of those. Like Chris has just done a a ton of work on himself and he's really articulate. And like, I don't know, I get he's an an emotional person and I'm a very emotional person (laughs) too. And so I don't wish for him to have depression. I don't wish for him to have sadness or mental health stuff. But like, it's almost there are many ways in which he's just a richer and fuller person because he's dealt with this and he's had to learn to talk about his feelings. I mean, it's a notoriously hard thing to get men to do. And here I have this man who's like really good at talking about what he's <laughs> going through and what he's feeling. And I, I mean, I I don't want it, to, it seems tacky to say like I benefit from it, but I think there's <laughs> like many ways in which, you know, and he, he is... All of that has translated into his good feelings, too. He's really good about talking about his good feelings. You don't get that with every person. And they have been dealing with a lot. The audience for The Chris Gethard Show has always been small, whether on public access or on the Internet. But a couple of months ago, the dream happened. Comedy Central said they would pay for a pilot of the show. And the taping of the pilot went great. We were all like, oh, we nailed it. And then Comedy Central passed, and we were like, okay, speed bump, let's show it around to other people. And then since then, 11 other networks have passed on it. Coming up, Chris and Hallie on making plans for their future when they have no idea where their careers are going. I heard from many of you about my interview with Chaz Ebert about the death of her husband, Roger. Some were skeptical about the way she described an ongoing conversation with him. But Sarah from Salt Lake City said, thank you, Chaz, for saying it. A listener named Susan added, I've also experienced communication with people who have died. At first, I resisted believing it. But once you know it's true, it creates a revolution in your life and all for the good. Alan Kahn sent in a story of relief beside a casket as he buried his brother last June. His brother was just 57 and an artist, and it was a hard service because his brother died suddenly and unexpectedly of a heart attack. And then... His son and my son did something very special. My brother had gotten into pouring white paint upon objects, just inundating them, covering them completely, and so... They poured white paint on the otherwise fairly pristine wooden casket before it was lowered. And it was somehow sacrilege, but also somehow completely appropriate for this man. And somehow losing him in such a tragic way was made ironic or humorous or somehow just less sad. Keep sending in your stories of a funeral or memorial that changed your life. You can email it to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. You can also record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it directly to me. Again, the email is deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. 
On the next episode, if you've ever wondered what it's like to be an 18-year-old man, a star football player, and a celebrity on campus, Dominique Foxworth says it's exactly how you think it is. There were some easy opportunities or layups, as as I called them back then, and oh, those man. easy opportunities. <laughs> layups. <laughs> Are we going to get a chance to get into conversations about the more mature Dominic Yes, Foxford absolutely, absolutely. That has a better perception <laughs> on masculinity than uh, racking up numbers. That's how I thought when I was when I was 18. Forgive me. Now he's 31 years old, retired from the NFL, and a student at Harvard Business School. And he's clear about what football culture got wrong about money and sex. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Chris Gethard and Hallie Bullitt met working together on an absurdist comedy show that has never made much sense. But now that they're looking ahead to marriage, sometimes it feels like it really doesn't make sense. A lot of that has to do with money. I can't keep showing up to do a show that's like guys hitting me with wiffle bats anymore. Like 2011, I was like a pretty depressed guy dating someone who wasn't nice to me. And I had a lot of stuff that I probably needed to get out creatively that I don't need to get out right now. I need to get out different things creatively. So it's really, I think, only in the course of getting married that I've started to stress about lifestyle stuff. I have been putting a lot of pressure on myself, this idea that I now need to be a provider of some sort, which you scoff at, but that really does stress me out. I always have in my head that my dad had two kids and owned a house when he was, I think, 27 years old. And I'm 34, and I'm just getting married now. 
and I'm like currently workshopping a joke about how I poop my pants on in a subway platform. Like that's professionally <laughs> what I'm up to right now is trying to really tighten up a joke about pooping my pants in public. Like, so there's like a lot of comparison issues with my dad. And then there is, I don't know. I think it's just natural to feel like, well, I'm like more responsible. I'm like responsible for other people. We've talked about having a kid sooner rather than later because I think we're both, you know, like I think we're at an age where if we're going to do it, we want to do it. And um, it is that sort of thing of like I've lived this lifestyle that's all calculated risks, which is pretty fun. But like I legitimately don't know how I'll be making my rent money in November. I don't know. I don't know if I'll have any money coming in. That's pretty fun when you're in your 20s and when all you have to worry about is yourself and where it's like, oh, well, if I need to like sublet my room and find someplace not as nice to crash or whatever, like that's pretty fun. But now there's like actual consequences. There's someone I have to come home to and look in the eye and potentially a small human that I'm dragging into it who doesn't have a choice in it, you know? So it stresses me out. That being said, I've talked about this a bunch and I'll talk about it with people and then Hallie will always tell me afterwards, like, I've, I haven't asked for any of that. You haven't, I do I get have sensitive not. about it because he'll talk about it on stage. He doesn't mention me. It doesn't have anything to do with me. <laughs> I just still do get sensitive about it because I feel like that stereotype is like, oh, well, that must be coming from the woman. She must be saying like, oh, you better like line up some work or you better do yeah. something that's more dependable. It's just it couldn't be it's further from all, what I like would want for Chris or, you know. It's so, really it's all internalized neuroses or some male instinct that does exist in some way. But whatever it is, it all comes from inside me. I definitely did kind of put a lot of my eggs in this basket professionally because I really did have so much confidence in what we were building. And now it looks like that is not going to be my job at any point. The belief that it was going to turn into that was something that was worth that was it was worth taking that risk for me. But now that it's a sure thing, it's like, well, what do I do? I don't know. I kept waiting for him to to freak out. It would have been so understandable. You know? He'd earned the right to totally flip out. Yeah, and I, got, like, I, I kept down waiting a little for bit. it and it never really happened. You know, it was just sort of on the next thing. Yeah. Personally I'm at a peak and professionally I'm in a valley. That's rare. Those usually don't diverge as hardcore as they are right now. Is that what how it feels that you're in a valley? Professionally a little bit, yeah. It doesn't appear that way on this. I don't think anyone else around you feels that way. Yeah, but what am I, what's the next thing? What I, am I going to do? But there there always is a next thing for you. Until there's not. <laughs> <laughs> like it feels like a splash of cold water on the face a little bit, like a reality check of like, all right, you got to at some point stop chasing your dreams and actually make one of them come true. And if you can't, you need to own up to that and figure out what you're actually going to do with your life. Like, those are real questions that I have to answer right now. You do not like that I'm saying that. I don't mind it at all. Okay. I'm just listening. And no, I, I mean, when the show got passed on, I think it just brought us back to, like, why do we really do this? You know, it is just like our weird clubhouse where just cool stuff happens there and neato things like come out of it. The fact that we're getting married, I don't know. It's like it's just this huge thing that came out of it. It's like the show, I don't, to me, is just like validated just in its own way and for its own reasons. And for me, like our, our relationship is like a huge part of that somehow. Yeah, that is the thing. Like it's like I got a wife out of it. 
ending your career as a professional dancer, which sounds like it was like a, a long goodbye of being beaten up and like finally admitting that your body couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Where are you now in your career and, and, and what do you think you took from watching the way he worked? You know, there are days when it's hard because Chris chose a career that he didn't have to say goodbye to. And so all of this work that he's done all of these years, it's all still cumulative. It is really hard not to be like, why didn't I, why did I pick something that I was going to have to stop doing? Um, you know, if I was, um, I was kind of like a rough thing to say, but like if I, if I was with a banker, that wouldn't be like presented to me on a daily basis. You know, my future as an artist is like, I really have to start over in so many ways. Hallie once said to me too, of like, imagine if comedy was a thing where you could like, on the job hurt yourself and then you didn't you weren't you weren't able to be as funny as you used to be you know like that was a real eye-opening thing for me of like how she's handling all this and like you know she's like incredibly tough about it and also just relentlessly creative so I do feel like there's times where you get stressed by that or you get worried about that but I know like I look at you and I'm like you were in all the coolest shows in New York any show that was the coolest one in New York you were in it while it was at its coolest you wrote two of the best albums I own I feel like sometimes you'll get worried about like upset with me because I'll be like you're gonna be fine you're the best and you're like well that's not really thank you but that's not really how that's not productive (laughs) it's not gonna actually lead to anything and is it music and performing that you're interested in sort of exploring at this point yeah good question i mean i'm doing a lot of choreography and i love that and that's obviously like a natural extension and that at a point where i'm trying to figure out okay so i did all of this i had this brilliant career that i loved so much and it's a tough act to follow it's how do i find something that i love as much as i loved what i did um so i i mean that's just the nicest thing about being around chris is just to sort of like use that as a model you just you have an idea and you just do it and i think he consistently finds that if he has an idea and he does it and he does it well you can get some people like pretty excited about it you know maybe not coming <laughs> 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 but 12 year olds in kansas <laughs> That's Hallie Bullet and Chris Gethard in the unlovable song, Crazy About You. Hallie and Chris just got married at a summer camp in upstate New York on August 30th. They're honeymooning now. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Emily Botine, James Ramsey, Jessica Miller, Henry Malofsky, Chris Bannon, Bill O'Neill, and Jim Briggs. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. If you like this episode, share it on Facebook or write us a review on iTunes. You can also subscribe. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. And again, send your stories of life-changing funerals to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Chris is on a beach with his bride in Hawaii now, still deciding whether he's going to keep doing his public access show. He may agonize about a lot in public, but for this, he says there won't be any announcements. 
says just go to chrisgethertshow.com for the next scheduled show on Wednesday, September 24th at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Turn it on. If we're here, then the show will continue. And if it's gone, then it's just gone. Don't, let's, not, anybody, let's not be cheesy about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.